So we're in the second sermon of this new evening series, and we're going to be reading together Acts 17, 22 through 34. I mentioned it this morning, we're going to be talking about the existence of God, and Acts 17, 22 and following is, is kind of basically a sermon from Paul to the people of Athens, convincing seeking to convince them and uh, connect with them in their society, their religious background, and bringing them to hopefully see and believe that Jesus is Lord, that God exists. Verse 22 of Acts 17, this is God's holy and infallible word. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live And move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this topic. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Brothers and sisters, if the Apostles' Creed is the foundation for our faith, this faith that all Christians share, last Sunday we took a careful look at the bedrock of that foundation. Under a foundation there's always bedrock. And three essentials we saw from Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism stuff that underlies the Apostles' Creed, really. And it's these three things. All Christians believe faith includes a knowledge based on God's Word, the Bible. All Christians believe faith includes an assurance embedded in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And all Christians agree that faith does something. And that something is that all who believe experience reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. That reconciliation, being made right with God, impacts our hearts, 
our lives. It changes everything about us, our past, our present, how we look at the future, our own death. And that reconciliation is something that the whole world is blessed by through God's people. And we hope especially with the goal of lost people coming to saving faith. First, the very first article of the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We're taking a very small part of that tonight, a lot smaller portion than I had originally planned. The beginning of this week, I was going to focus on what the Heidelberg Catechism first deals with after that Lord's Day 7, creation, providence. But then I thought, what about who God is? Like the first article of the Belgic Confession, the attributes of God and and the idea of the Trinity. And that's what I was going to do, like on Monday or Tuesday. But then I thought even more basic, more foundational, that what about we focus on God and his existence? Because that's important today. When our catechism was written in the 1500s, really, basically, everybody believed in God. But in the 1600s, with the rise of the Enlightenment and rationalism, people began to seriously doubt whether God exists at all. And I know we have some younger people, some even boys and girls here. I know it sounds crazy, but there are people who doubt that our God exists. And that's been the most important question in the history of philosophy in the last 400 years. Does God exist? And that's also the most important question of our lives. Whether you believe in God or not forms the great dividing line of faith. They estimate that 38% of the U.S. population is unchurched. A number of these unchurched seem to believe God exists, but they must be kind of wobbly about being convinced of it or caring about it because they don't go to church. They don't attend worship with the people that worship God. An increasing number of that population of unchurched in our nation, according to the Barna group that studies these things, are either outright atheists, atheists do not believe God exists, or they're agnostics, they don't know whether he exists. 25% of unchurched adults, they estimate, are in that category of agnostic or outright atheist. The statistics also show that the younger the generation the greater percentage of people who don't believe God exists. So if you look at you know people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s going down to their 20s, a greater percentage of people, it's increasing the number of people who don't believe God exists. And so we ask ourselves what Christians have asked over the years, can we convince these people of our faith? Is there proof that God exists? And sometimes maybe we wonder that for ourselves, not even thinking about the world out there, but 
You say, I believe in God, but why exactly? Where's the evidence of it? How, how is that demonstrated? How can I demonstrate it? The fact is, i got to tell you tonight, that there is good evidence that God exists. People talk about faith these days as a personal thing, a private thing, sort of a preference, a, a choice we make. But Christians have always believed that there is evidence that we can point to for our faith. I wonder how much of us would feel comfortable sharing with someone why we believe in God. Think about that. Could you give some good reasons? If you're talking to someone who doesn't believe and who's like, how could you believe in an invisible being? I don't see him. And yet you worship him, you talk to him in prayer, you follow him. What would you say? What, what would you tell that person? I hope that what we're going to talk about tonight will give you some tools for those types of conversations and also give us all assurance, encouragement in our own faith. Believing in God makes a whole lot of sense. Atheists act like Christians are, are nuts for believing in God. I don't know if you've ever caught clips of this guy. He's on HBO, so I haven't seen the show or anything, but Bill Maher, you've heard Bill Maher or Maher? Very demeaning of Christians. Unbelievable. He said, he, one of his quotes is, I think faith is a neurological disorder. And I'm sure he said much harsher things than that. But the evidence shows that it's not at all crazy to believe in God. In fact, it makes a whole lot more sense than believing in no God. We're going to talk, first of all, about universal truths. These are truths that are in nature, in history, stuff that is there for all people to see and consider. There are a number of these out there. I'm going to share the four main ones. So these are... First of all, there's going to be three pieces of evidence altogether, universal, then two others, but we're going to look at four pieces of universal evidence, uh, four pieces of evidence that point us to the existence of God, and they're out there for all people to see, they're out there for all people to consider. I'm going to call the first one the cause-effect argument. The big name for it is the cosmological argument. And it has to do with the law of causality. And that's the foundation for how we do modern science. The law of causality. If you see an effect, there must be something that caused it. And there is an example of this in the news this week. We're getting more and more incredible images from our solar system. This time, it was extra details about one of Saturn's moons. Did you see that? I don't even know if I could pronounce this moon. Enceladus is one of the moons of Saturn. Enceladus was discovered a while back to have an outer ice shell that surrounds the entire planet. What they more recently have found out is that as the moon orbits the planet Saturn, there's a slight wobble in the orbit. And based on that observable effect, scientists say they know that 
under that outer ice shell, before you get to the rocky, solid interior, is a global ocean. So there's some very complicated science that I would never be able to figure out in order to do those calculations to figure it out. But at the end of it, it's a basic, simple cause-effect deduction. If there's an effect, in this case the wobble, there's got to be a cause to it. My four-year-old, Adriana, gets this. She came into my office on Thursday after the women's Bible study wanting, of course, a candy. I said, but did you just have a candy? She said, well, is there chocolate on my face? I said, no. And then with a sly smile, she said, then I didn't have a candy. I'm a little concerned about her, lodge, her, her thinking there. I don't want to think about what that might look like in 10 years. But she knew no effect. Well, then you can't suppose a cause. No chocolate, no candy. But with an effect, you have to deduce a cause. An empty candy wrapper on the floor of my house would meet, lead me to deduce that there was once candy in the wrapper. The candy is no longer there. It must be somewhere else. And from that I can deduce, it was likely eaten by a daughter since Sarah and I tend to throw away our trash in the home and our daughters don't always do that. All things must have a cause. And you can keep going back from the candy eaten by a daughter deduced from an empty candy wrapper. You can go further back to bigger questions. Well, how did that daughter get there? Well, from parents, from me and Sarah. Well, how did I get here? How did Sarah get here? Well, from our parents, how did they get there? And on and on and further and further back. There's a general agreement that there can't be an infinite series of causes. And so at some point, you've got to get to an ultimate cause all the way back. Someone must have started the ball rolling. We know him. He's God. Something uncaused started this whole cause and effect that continues to this day. The second argument we're going to call the purpose argument. The fancier title is the teleological argument. This has to do with looking around us and seeing order and beauty and harmony and purpose. There's climate. There are seasons. Our blood circulates. Think of how our eyes work, our brain. It's all crazy. When you really start to learn what this stuff is, not that I've learned it all, but if you just read on any one of these topics... You're just astounded. On Wednesday, Sarah and Sophia and Adriana, as they got into the van to pick up Olivia from volleyball practice, noticed a spider on our basketball hoop in our driveway. And the spider was busy. They stopped and were a little late for Olivia because this was so amazing. They watched as this spider created a beautiful, intricate web at high speed. This spiderweb material, it came out of its butt. It's just so weird, right? And then eight legs to direct that web. The web is a thing of beauty all by itself that you can just, but it's there for the purpose of catching food 
for this tiny, and this is one tiny little piece of nature and creation. You go back to the planet Saturn. When I was a kid, I thought, I thought we were taught there were eight or nine moons. Do you know how many we have discovered so far, moons and moonlets? 150 moons of Saturn. Did anybody know there were that many now? Many of them substantial because 53 have names. Some of these moons are in the rings, and that's what keeps the rings from dissipating. We're constantly discovering more details about our solar system, and we find that there's harmony and there is order out there. From the stars to the planets to gravity, animals, oceans, cells, atoms, it's all structured. It all works in amazing ways. How could that possibly happen by chance? How could that possibly happen without an intelligent being having planned it all, put it there, set it in motion? They say the chance that life could have began, begun by chance is estimated to be 10 to the 40th power. That's a one with 40,000 zeros behind it. You look at it all, and it seems like it would take a whole lot more faith to believe this all happened by chance than to believe that God did it. All of this purpose, this beauty, it implies a supreme being of some kind. It doesn't necessarily get you to the God of the Bible, but it certainly gets you to the idea that there must be a God. Another universal evident argument is the moral argument for God. The fact that people have a conscience of some sort. You know, some people's conscience gets gets marred and it doesn't seem like they have any, but we seem to start out with a conscience. There's this general idea that there is right and wrong in every culture. We have the ideas of, of happiness. People are afraid of death, good and evil. And all of that would indicate there is a moral being over everything causing this. A God who is moral, who not only created laws of nature and the laws of the universe, but laws of morality in our hearts. One who will make things right, judge evil, reward good, and so on and so forth. The last of these universal arguments is the religious argument. And it comes from anthropology and sociology, study of religions especially. People that study religions find that people in every culture have some kind of religion. As far back as we can study cultures and as far into the reaches of the world we can go, it looks like every group of people has a religion seems to be in the essence of human nature because even remote tribes that haven't had contact with anyone else are discovered to have some sense of God and they have worship of some kind. Many cultures, for example, around the world have a flood story and sacred texts. Somehow it seems that the seed of religion is implanted in people. That would imply that there is something to religion. If there are all these variations, it would imply that perhaps behind it all is the real thing. A true God 
a, a real religion. If there's a sense of the divine inherent in people, it would make most sense that it is because there actually is a God. These universal arguments certainly show evidence for the existence of God, but they don't give us tons of detail about who God is and his character. For that, we've got to go a deeper, to a deeper level of evidence, and that's biblical evidence. We read in the Bible that Scripture is reliable. We can read it and know it's true. God's Word is truth, says John 17, 17. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 reads, All Scripture is God-breathed. And this reliable, God-breathed book tells us there is a God. Psalm 14, 1, in fact, says it's foolish to say there is no God. In Acts 17, we have Paul preaching to the Greeks who had many false gods about the real and true God. This is obviously a little different from universal evidence because it implies belief or trust in the Bible. And so people might say that to believe there is a God because the Bible says so is not much evidence of God. But it certainly is evidence. It is evidence. There is much evidence within the Bible and even outside the Bible That the Bible is true. That the Bible is reliable. And the Bible tells us not only that there is a God. The Bible tells us a lot about Him. The Bible gives us evidence of God, especially the heart of it, is through revealing Jesus. Where is the evidence of God according to God's Word? It's in Jesus the Son. Jesus is God in the flesh who walked among us on this earth. Who is this God? What's he all about? What's he like? Again, we look to Jesus. We look to his work. We look to his life and death and resurrection from the dead. It all demonstrates who God is in his perfect love and mercy and his perfect justice and righteousness. So the biblical evidence culminates in Jesus God in the flesh. And that leads us to a final proof or evidence. And that's the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, which we might call personal evidence. The Spirit's testimony in our hearts causes us to believe the Bible, makes us resonate with the universal truths, and causes us to believe in God by believing in His Son, Jesus. Some might say this proof of God's existence is not reliable. This is circular reasoning to say, I believe in God because the Spirit of God tells me I believe. Well, that, the, yes, that may be true, and you can call it any type of reasoning you want, but it's certainly evidence. It's evidence put right into our hearts. For all who believe, we have a sense deep down that there is a God. There has to be. There just is no other option. That's the Holy Spirit in our hearts saying that. That's Jesus in us. And ultimately, that is what's needed. 
That is what solidifies the other evidence and makes us see it so clearly as believers. And so we talk about the universal evidence and the biblical evidence, which is all good evidence we can give to unbelievers for God's existence. But added to what we do is that we must pray for the Spirit that He would work in people's hearts so they they would know God. We pray that Jesus would enter people's hearts. That's ultimately what has to happen. I think for all these reasons, you and I can be secure in this most foundational piece of our faith that we start every time we say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God. He is real, though many claim He is not. When you consider all of the evidence out there, it sure seems like you have to work really hard to be an atheist. The arguments for the existence of God are much, much stronger than the arguments people make who deny His existence. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Atheists will say to us, you can't prove there is a God. Well, we say in response, you can't prove there is not a God. And of course, they can't. No one has ever proved there is no God. Quite the opposite. There is all kinds of evidence that points to God. It's all around us in our world. It's in the Bible. And the evidence is in our hearts. The testimony of the Holy Spirit who causes us to see and to embrace our Lord Jesus, who is God in the flesh.